Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I am Cindy Howes, here with Lizzie No. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Cindy. Hello from the open road. How's it going? Good. Can you guess where I am? I'm going to guess Phoenix or New Mexico or California or Nevada or Chicago. I love a lady who hedges her bets. Yes, I am in California. I am headed to San Diego today. Did I guess California? You did guess. It was on your list of eight different places. Oh. So, Basic Folk has a mailing list. If you are not on it, you can sign up for it at basicfolk.com and click on the red sign up link. You can also follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod. We're a listener funded podcast. You can make a contribution at basicfolk.com slash donate. All right, we got the business out of the way. Finally. I saw this film, Women Talking. Have you heard of this film? <gasps> I've never heard of Women Talking. What's next? Women voting? It's funny because they do all of that in this film. Women talk. Stop it. They vote. They think. And they make decisions. What are the decisions about? Like, what makeup to wear? <laughs> Which man to marry... What cookie to bake today? Yes. This movie was intense. The premise of it, so it was directed and written by Sarah Polly. The film is about this religious community. They don't ever say, like, what kind of religious community it is. They give you very little details. But the women Mm. are being attacked by the men in the community at an alarming rate. So they are trying to decide whether they should leave or stay whoa it's kind of heady and it's one of those films where i i feel like i'm a small-brained person and i'm watching it and being like when is this over is this going to end soon Cindy, you have one of the biggest brains i've ever encountered aren't you nice no it's it's for sure it's for serious <laughs> wow thank you i have been thinking about it quite a bit women talking so it's not like a Definitely not a feel-good movie, but it is like a deep thinker. Ooh, I really want to see it. It is like blood, like a little bloody. If you are triggered by that type of stuff, uh, maybe not the best movie for you to watch. Maybe watch You've Got Mail, which is another film that I've recently watched. Oh, that's a good movie. I like, what's the original one where um, Judy Garland plays the harp? In the Good Old Summertime? They have a rival business, and then it's like rivals to friends to begrudging lovers story. (laughs) 
Turn of the century, America, Andrew and Veronica are co-workers in a music shop who dislike one another. Yes, the music shop. During business hours, but unwittingly carry on an anonymous romance through the mail. Another thing that's really been floating my boat recently is this board game. I've talked about it before called Wingspan. What's that? You take care of an aviary. You try to beat your your competition by gaining a lot of points, and it's so complicated. It's like... uh, That sounds fun. There's many moving parts, and there's many ways to to get points and stuff. Next time you come to visit, we should play it. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. It, it'll be great. My favorite board game is Chick-A-Pig. Have you played Chick-A-Pig before? Chick-A-Pig. No. Chick-A-Pig. Um, it's like a very complicated and hard to understand concept that has nothing to do with the, the rules of the game. Like the premise is that there's the there are these chicken-pig hybrid animals that you have to move from one side of the board to the other. There's all these obstacles. There's like little cow poop that you can slip in by mistake. Um, It's a great time for all ages. Excellent. Well, listen, I'd love to get to our interview today, which I'm excited for everyone to hear. Lizzie got to speak with Adim, the artist. I am so excited about this interview. Adim is my friend. And yet I was still like very intimidated about the interview because their music is so great and they're such an interesting artist that I like really wanted to do it right you know so it was this interesting experience of like this is someone who I chit chat with all the time but when it came to the interview it felt like momentous Mm. can I tell you a little bit about Adim the artist please you have likely heard about Adim the artist recently because they've gained a ton of new fans with their hit new album, White Trash Revelry, but they're anything but an overnight success. Adim's journey to singer-songwriter acclaim began when they moved from the Carolinas to New York State in middle school, where they learned that being from the American South meant something to people. They learned that it came with certain assumptions and expectations, and Adim has been reckoning with those expectations and prejudices and stereotypes over the course of eight albums, um, most notably on their recent uh, release, White Trash Revelry. This new album is packed with poignant, witty, economical lyrics and characters so real that you could reach out and shake their hands. Mm. Throughout the record, you'll notice this complex back and forth relationship with religion, which of course we had to dig into on the podcast. In a past life, Adim worked as a worship leader and even considered becoming a pastor. And you might be surprised at how highly transferable this previous work experience is in their life as a performing singer-songwriter. Our conversation contains many, many, many laughs, uh, some guitar talk, some crowdfunding talk, some deep family and spiritual talk, and a million great insights from one of alt-country music's rising stars, Adim the Artist. All right, let's take a listen to a song from their latest album. This is Middle of a Heart, and then we'll get to our conversation with Adim the Artist and Lizzie No on Basic Folk. (laughs) 
Daddy's gonna buy me a brand new gun. Show me how to clean it in the yard. That boss says he can't wait to see me fire with that steady arm. A couple hours of waiting and some heavy concentration put a bullet through the middle of a heart. Everybody's gonna be so glad to see the freezer full of fresh deer meat. Mama's gonna be so proud of me when we get back to the farm. Adeem the artist, welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. So with that being said, let's jump right in. What was elementary school like for you and what was your favorite subject? Um, It was fine. I would say my favorite subject was probably English or um, or science. I liked I liked science and in elementary school. Beyond that, I I started losing my relationship with it pretty quick. But you weren't into the periodic table. No. Okay. so what was your earliest memory of being aware of God? (laughs) Good podcast. This is a good podcast. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Um, I was promised to God by my mother while she was pregnant with me. Um, so that's very old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. How did you know that? Were you told that a lot as a kid? Yes. So what, can you expand on what that meant to your family? Like, were you like a a miracle baby that was then promised that like your parents were going to raise you in a particular way? Um, I think my mom's really big on storytelling as an act of reality creation. And I think for her, it probably was like a way of making what many people considered to be a profound and irreconcilable mistake into a divine intervention. Um, And I think it also was her way of endowing me with a sort of sense of purpose as a white trash kid from a small rural town in North Carolina. That's a really powerful way to let someone know, like, you're special and you're going to be doing something special with your life. Did did you? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I sold you to God. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're spoken for already. So you went to church growing up. You you spent the first few years of your life in North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Before moving to Syracuse. I was in North Carolina until I was 12 or 13, but the church was kind of sporadic. I mean, we went through different iterations of what that looked like and different levels of commitment and in different Mm -hmm. times. So it sounds like your your mom had like a, a spiritual journey that she was on, but not necessarily like an attachment to a particular religious practice. Oh yeah, yeah. My mom. Well, my mom grew up kind of in a in a in a really bizarre environment. Um, my grandmother's husband, her, uh, my mother's stepfather, was a was a drug dealer, and so when my mom was a child, she was tasked with looking under the cow pies to get the psilocybin mushrooms to make mushroom tea for my grandmother and their friends. And so this was kind of the, you know, my mother from a very young age was exposed to hallucinogenic drugs um, and this sort of carefree uh, lifestyle. So yeah, that, that informs my mother's spiritual journey, I think, in a lot of ways. I'll bet. I actually... We're going to get to that when it comes to you a little bit later. But I read a story that your family got in in trouble at church for teaching you how to cuss. Can we talk about that? Oh, that was at school. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't teach me. You had a potty mouth? I wouldn't say they taught me how to cuss. And I didn't. I I actually took it very seriously, probably because of this incident in hindsight. Um, But yeah, I said a swear word. I said ass. Yeah, I said ass. I was in the third grade. And uh, a gal in class. No, 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 no. I was in the fourth grade at this point because this that was the last year I attended school. I, I think fourth, fourth grade, grade is old enough to say ass. 
I thought so anyways. <laughs> uh, I was in the fourth grade and I said ass and a girl told on me. And the teacher, um, the teacher was relentless. She was like, what kind of parents raise their kid in the kind of environment where they think this kind of language is acceptable? I mean, like, went on about it, I mean, really, really paraded it. And my mom, well, she showed her ass. My mom went down there <laughs> and took care of business. And then I never went back to school. That was that for uh, until I was in New York. Really? Were you, were you homeschooled? Kinda. <laughs> <laughs> fun um okay what was your first guitar and how did you learn to play Ooh, my first guitar was a sears and roebuck guitar i'll show it to you it's please right ow okay so for those that are listening at home adeem is sort of blurring the camera reaching for a mysterious object that um it's coming that didn't into go focus so well. mm-hmm. you okay yeah, I'm okay. okay. You were upside down for a second. Okay, we're back. That's it. It's a. It's kind of a, a sunburst acoustic from Sears and Roebuck. And, That's uh, great. The action is about an inch and a half from the fretboard. That's how you want it. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great way to... Uh, if you want to learn to bar chords on a guitar like that, you could go to the Olympics of guitar playing. Yeah. So th- my uh, basically, I started playing really in New York when we moved up there because I was mm-hmm. I felt like such a a displaced little uh, little redneck. But mm-hmm. um, I didn't know how to tune it, and I didn't have any musical influences in my life who were handy with an instrument. So I sort of um, noodled around with positioning of my hand until I found a way to clamp the strings that formed a sort of uh, bar chord. It was almost like uh, the way that you can do an A and let it ring out if you put yeah. your index finger on the fifth fret, you know? Yeah. It was similar to that. And I would make this bar chord, um, and I, was, I, was, I became... <laughs> I had relative pitch enough that I could tune somebody else's guitar to this shitty out-of-tune thing that my guitar just stumbled into one day and to play these bar chords. And so I, I made like a 15 song cd of punk songs on the acoustic guitar that was like 2004 um and then in 2005 somebody showed me how to tune it so then things changed a lot after that whoa so wait are those is that recording available yeah i can send you i can send you a song or two if you want okay yeah because i would love to learn about this sort of that might be the secret chord that david david played you know that tuning i promise you with certainty that it was not the secret chord (laughs) God well, was not you, happy about this one. When you when you first picked up the guitar, like you, you said that you didn't have, um, you know, folks in your life that could help you tune it or played instruments. But in your imagination, were, was there a, a person, an artist, a handful of artists who you had in your mind as like, that person's a good guitar player. That's what I want to sound like. Like, did you have a blueprint at all? Well, I, I don't. I, it's... No, I, I don't. I don't think I ever cared about the guitar. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think. I think to me, even then, the guitar was sort of a means to an end. It was a vehicle for the poetry and the language mm-hmm. that I wanted to get out. And so I didn't really, you know, you know, even now, if I'm at like a, if I'm at like a concert and somebody's really wailing on the guitar, I kind of start mm-hmm. to zone out and think about other things I could be doing. 
like I've got like a like an eight minute threshold of like, wow, that's impressive. I can't imagine trying to do that. And then I'm like, all right, I'm over it. I want to go eat some rice somewhere. Can we go eat some rice? Yeah. Which isn't to say that the guitar is not awesome. Just to say that like that. That's just not what brings you in. No, no, no. And and I mean, there were people like uh, like Garth Brooks and mm-hmm. um, Garth Brooks was huge for me. Um, and the Dixie Chicks, I liked them a lot. The Chicks, as it were. Um, I don't want to want to ruffle any feathers. <laughs> don't want to um, step on any toes. But um yeah, and then and then uh as I started getting more into guitar, I think that I really liked the Counting Crows and Collective yeah. Soul and a lot of like 90s alt rock bands and indie rock bands and that kind of became Oh, and then and then I would say uh probably due to the popularity of that that walk the line movie that I got obsessed with Johnny oh, Cash. That was um, a good movie, I think. Right? Uh, I don't actually. That's not no. an official basic folk position. I, I remember s- liking it as a when it came <laughs> out, but I don't know if it would hold up. I have very very strong feelings about this. Um, Talk to me. I don't know if I should at this time. I think we should. <gasps> yeah. Okay. It's too it's too hot for on air. We're gonna talk about this off well, mic, and our basic folk listeners are just gonna have to guess. <laughs> it's something I want to talk about more, but I'm working on some projects that are gonna come to light, and then I'll talk about it more then. So I I I kind of want to I kind of want to keep my my feelings about the Johnny Cash movie close to my chest for right now. Yeah, I had a good four or five years, and that was like kind of the big like big songwriting mm-hmm. crash course, big guitar crash course. That's why I'm such a mediocre guitarist because Johnny Cash was my hero. <laughs> I thought it's because the devil wouldn't make a deal with you. (laughs) Those two things. So when you were 13, you moved to Syracuse, New York. What did you learn about your southernness at that point? You know, whether you think it's true now or not, like what were the impressions that you got of what it meant to be from the South? It was really weird. People are people are super racist in the South. I'm not trying to say that's not true or, Mm -hmm. or combat that, but it was I was subjected to a new type of uh, new type of racism in the Northeast mm-hmm. as a Southerner. Um, yeah. I think I seemed like a uniquely comfortable place to deposit racist hot takes um, because they were like, "This guy is going to get it." You know what I mean? Oh, this this guy is this guy is in, just like me. Yeah, more exactly, so. exactly. And I didn't, I didn't. I mean, God, I could shamefully report plenty of racist things that I overheard and experienced as a child growing up in the South. Yeah. But, but th- there is a way of being racist that is not intentioned. You know what I mean? And, and, and this is a, this is like a thing that becomes really t- difficult to talk about and parse when discussing the language of racism and white supremacy, because it sort of naturally conflates, uh, like card carrying clan members with uh people who stumble haphazardly into microaggressions because right. they don't they don't have the education to withstand it. Um my parents were probably somewhere between those two things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but as a child I remember them reporting like pretty casually like, you know, like no, we don't have like well, I guess the best example is like the first place my mom looked for god was in the um the jehovah's witnesses which are mm-hmm. which are 
it was the most integrated church I ever yes. experienced actually in, in my, in my experience going through the, the church that we had a lot of black friends then. And, uh, we hung out with them. They came over to the mm-hmm. trailer and hung out with us. You know, that, that, that was like part of my life back then. And so I, I feel like that's important. You know, I didn't, I never had the sense my entire life that my parents didn't like black people or thought they right. were gross or thought they were, you know, I know that my dad, especially with my sister was like really hard hammering, like don't date any black guys. But that was like, that was much later in life before I like kind of saw that, you know, that was, mm-hmm. I, I I don't know, I guess, yeah, coming to the North and having people who were like, kind of like assured of their racism, like it was a decision they'd made right. was, it was a new thing for me. And they thought that I was kind of in that same boat and that didn't happen right. all the time, but you know, and also like it was more, it was more segregated. Like, like yeah. we didn't have any black people in our neighborhood. Uh, like, you know, I saw more black people in North Carolina than I did in, in New York. It was much more. You knew which neighborhoods to stay away from. And I remember, I remember going to a Ponderosa one time in Syracuse. And we walked in. It was in East Syracuse, which is... Uh, I don't I don't know how the gentrification is making its mark there at this point but at that point that was there were a lot of black people in East Syracuse. Right. And we went to this Ponderosa and we walked in and we were the only white people there and my mom was like I don't think we're supposed to be here. Let's <laughs> leave. We had to go Did you home. Leave? Yeah. You just walked out? We walked Stop out. Stop it. My mom was like, I don't I don't think we should be in here. Okay, well what do you think she meant by that? Do you think it was like a safety thing or do you think it was like a let's not intrude type of thing I, or a little both? I'm not defending my mom uh, in any way. I think I think she was discomforted by being the mm-hmm. only white people there. But I sure. do I do think there was a sense of like I don't know if we're like allowed to be here. Like yeah, I don't fair know, like I think that was the which you know that happens in churches a lot too, where yeah. people walk into a black church and they're like, I think I'm encroaching in some way, and I should probably leave. And sometimes it's true. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know? But I think it's it's more often true in a white space than a black space. Like you can come if you're 100% absolutely agree. Just because that's how you guys run your churches, does it, you're welcome to come sit and worship, you know, like just because that's, that's the funny thing about uh, whiteness is that like a lot of times white people get very hot and bothered because they're like, well, if you guys would probably do the same thing that we do. And a lot of times they just wouldn't. You decided to leave New York and become a pastor. What was the decision? What was your Ugh. what was your thinking on that? Didn't you didn't you move to Tennessee to become a pastor? I was a worship pastor, which is basically a glorified uh, musician who takes themselves way too seriously. Uh, oh. And um, yeah, I had written a, I wrote an EP in two thousand and five. Mm-hmm. Called meet called uh, Rise of the Saints and there was a song in there called Meet Me in the Theater, which mm-hmm. was about um, it was a it was a, within the church an attack on the notion that attending church was an important component to interfacing with the living God, and it mm-hmm. was saying you can you can interface with the living God any old place you can meet God in a theater whatever you need to do you know that was kind of the idea, and um, feeling what is through the lens of hindsight, uh, a deep, relentless compulsion to rescue myself from a toxic, harmful, abusive environment. 
uh, that I was not able at the time to have the tools to label as such, I -hmm. found myself searching for the wisdom of God. And in this search, uh, kept coming around to this idea that I was supposed to go to Tennessee for some reason. Probably Mm -hmm. a lot of that is tied up with Johnny Cash and my relationship with him and his music. And I found this church in Knoxville, Tennessee that was meeting in a theater. And I thought, well, that's it. That's the Lord speaking to me. And I wrote them an email and I sent them the song and they wrote back and they said, Adim, it sounds like God is calling you here. Please come. We can give you no money, but we'll try to find a place for you to stay. And so I moved to Tennessee at 21, 22 mm-hmm. years old, and I had never lived on my own before. I was still living at home, and I don't even think I'd had a license for more than like six months. Mm-hmm. Um, but you drove yourself to Tennessee. I think my dad helped me. No, no, no. I drove myself. Yeah, I drove myself wow. down here. Um, my dad came to visit the church with me. We went and got crystals mm-hmm. with the pastor. Um, a, a, a holy traditional Southern experience of making yourself sick with tiny uh, steamed burgers. Um, I thought you were saying you went out and like went and got some like healing crystals. No, 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 no. And I we was went, like, wow, that's a really woo-woo church. Okay. No, no. We went to crystals. Crystals. The, the white trash white castle is what that is. <laughs> Um, well, it sounds like at that, like suddenly your music became something that needed to be useful for a group of people. How did you like, did, what kind of a performer did that make, turn you into? Like, was there a process of kind of guess and check as to like what people would find inspiring, what people would find useful? No, I was very good at this already. I mean, I'd been doing it for years mm-hmm. um, for a youth group, and I was even on staff at a church making a little bit of money for a while as the as the worship pastor there. Um, it's it's still it's still you know really applicable to what I do now. Um, oh, absolutely! It is uh, the most. Um, I'm realizing now. I've been facing away from the microphone. People are like, "Why? Why is Dean mumbling so?" so much on this podcast um yeah it's a very manipulative way like emotionally manipulative way of doing music um Mm -hmm. that informed i think a lot of the way that i was able to capture you know that emotion and storytelling especially as i was able to break away and start exploring some of what i was trying to convey and um but yeah yeah that was um that was a time I, i actually i was at the church for about a year and then I became uh, I became a member of the Messianic Jewish Synagogue, um, which is a, how did you become a member? I Googled uh, Messianic Synagogue and I found one, and I went there, and um, their worship pastor left a few weeks after I arrived, and they were in desperate need. And they heard that I was a worship pastor because I had told one of the congregants that I was there on, as a as a visitor from a, a, another church okay. who was trying to build a relationship with them. And they offered me a job. They paid me 150 bucks a week. And um, I all the songs were in minor keys, but they were also jubilant. And there yes. was a lot of Hebrew. So I got to learn some Hebrew and... Um, I went on some like events and stuff. I got heavily um, indoctrinated with like really naked Zionist propaganda. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa! Yes. And uh, I was really—it's—it's it's actually funny because 
the church I came down here for just wasn't gelling mm-hmm. with me. I, I wasn't I wasn't a good fit. I, I still mm-hmm. had a lot of years of abuse and toxic relationships to mm-hmm. like deconstruct. I was parroting a lot of my the negative behaviors that I kind of grew up uh, orbiting, and uh, and they were also. I mean, it's, it was also an insane situation anybody that's like we should start a church and we'll do it in a movie theater we'll save people bring them to god you know that's like a pretty unhinged position anyway i don't mean to frame myself as the irrational spectator in a world yeah. of logic um but, but i but i you know i was kind of i was kind of getting into the that and they had um the pastor had a stepdaughter who I became close with because she had gotten kicked out of this program for dating a, somebody that was... Par- I, I'm realizing now I'm saying too much. Uh, she okay. had left this program and come back home. and mm-hmm. uh, and But she had been in Jordan. Okay. And so we kind of became friends, even though we had really juxtaposed views on a lot of things out of necessity because she was stuck living with her mom and stepdad and going to this church she didn't like. And I was the worship pastor at this church, knew nobody in town, had no support system or anything. Um, and so we just kind of, it was like, uh, there was her and then there was like this 12-year-old girl that I lived with who I would go on excursions with and hang out with, which in hindsight <laughs> is really weird. Because um, I was like 22 and I was like, you want to go to the zoo today? Let's go hang out at the zoo. Um, I feel like you're, that's a, you're, you're a positive adult role model, no? Yes. Taking that the kids nice. to the zoo. That sounds nice. I don't. I don't know that I saw myself through that lens. I think I was just like, "This is my friend who's twelve, and that's totally oh, fine." Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so she, coming from Jordan, had a very different perspective on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I remember I I, I went to this uh, this big event, and it was uh, <laughs> it was like a you know we we were under a conference. We were under a conference mm-hmm. called the Takun Conference, which is like a collection of messianic synagogues that all kind of okay. like it's basically a denomination of this new sort of pseudo religion that's mm-hmm. a mixture of Judaism and Christianity, which yes. is just bastardized Judaism anyway. It's very confusing. Anyway, um, listeners, you need to look this up on your own because we actually do not have the time on the podcast to explain the ins and outs of messianic Judaism. Um, but carry it on. Yeah, please do your own research. It's not like the vaccine. Like, do your real research. It's essentially uh, like conservative evangelicalism, like on hype with Jewish cosplay involved. That's yes. a breakdown of this. Um, and so I went to this conference. There were all these speakers. Uh, it was really moving. I was really stirred. I remember an awkward moment where I brought up to one of the Messianic rabbis that I was really enamored by the work of Rumi. And mm-hmm. he was like, the Muslim writer? And I was like, I don't think so. Because I didn't understand that Sufi was like a, <laughs> like a subset. Mm-hmm. I was a redneck kid. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's just not part of the story, but very funny. Um, and this guy was there who had just come back from his first visit to Israel and, and we were having coffee and he said, Adim, when you go, you're going to see it. It's insane. You can literally see where the hand of God stops covering the land because the grass is green right up until where Palestine starts. Like Israel, literally, you can see the plants won't grow, the the grapes won't grow. It's like that clear. And I was like, that's insane. And so I came home and I parroted that to my friend who oh, had just gosh, come back from Adeem, Jordan. No. And she said, Adim, that's true. 
because they pour gasoline on the land and they uproot the trees and they make sure nothing can grow. It's part of the oppressive occupation that's going on there. You know, and if I hadn't had somebody with that grounded personal experience Mm -hmm. of being there, it would have been much easier for me to get enraptured in in that that deluge of misinformation. That's a really that's a really good example of like how you can be so wrong and like convinced that you're right. And and yeah. and coming from a place of being well-meaning and looking yeah. for spiritual community and a sense of purpose like these are all good things that you were in search of and that you were pursuing. But because you got the wrong information from from really unreliable sources you were like steered completely wrong and then heard somebody who had more in-depth experience and knowledge about that topic. You took their like critique and their, and the new information under advisement and you changed your opinion and now you're living differently as a result. And don't you just wish a few more people could, could act well, in this way? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a muscle that you have to exercise and I was exercising mm-hmm. it from such a young age. Yeah, that's just the reality of it. Like I've I've had this conversation with a lot of people, and it's not like I just had some secret sauce. Like I really just have had to exercise this muscle over and over and over again, and it's and it's kept me from from staying too long <laughs> in any number of mm-hmm. really. I mean, I've visited some weird places, but I've never stayed too too long. That's a beautiful way of putting it. I I don't want to get too far in without talking about your most recent two albums, um, Cast Iron Pansexual and White Trash Revelry. So I sort of feel like, as a listener of your music, that I Never Came Out is sort of an artistic turning point where you're ex- you're addressing your queer identity in a new way. And there's, I think, kind of shades of that song in some of your other more recent work as well. Um, what was it like in the early days of performing that song um, how are audiences reacting to it? And do you feel like that re- reaction has changed as your like notoriety has grown? It's, it's interesting that because I wrote and recorded a lot of that during the pandemic. And so mm-hmm. there wasn't, you know, it was kind of the first time I think I'd ever released a collection of songs that hadn't been kind of workshopped in front of people. Oh, interesting. You know? yeah. um, up until that point, there was always kind of a like, all right, well, this one's not been getting a good reaction. So we'll put mm-hmm. this in the vault and, <laughs> you know, um, but this album was totally like, all right, I'm going to have to trust my own instincts and, and try to envision what this is going to look like live. So I think the first time I really got to try it out was probably, well, I did a show at the Bird in the Book here in town mm-hmm. that was really warm, but it was mostly queer people, um, Appalachian queer folks that came down, which was really nice. And that was a warm thing. Um, but it was probably being on tour with American Aquarium was really the yeah. first time I got to get out. And if you go to see an American Aquarium concert and you're hoping to get to shout really loud, I hope he breaks your heart with your fist in the air. Um, and the opening act walks out donning uh, facial hair and makeup, and the first line is, boys in tight blue jeans yep. are driving me crazy. <laughs> um, it is a disquieting experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's funny. I think there are people, you know, there are people who are really put off immediately and decide like, this isn't for me and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm sure you haven't experienced yourself. 
Um, never, do- <laughs> never. I'm universally beloved. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I would say, I mean, the, you know, and this is this has actually become a problem that I've had to address the more that I've been exposed to more audiences. Um, the tendency to spend my time warming people up to the idea that I'm queer and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm able to win people over usually, I think, uh, because I'm, I'm, I am just genuinely one of them in a lot of ways yes. that, that people don't expect, you know. I use the word faggot at most of my shows to describe mm-hmm. myself. Um, did not do well in the Northeast at all. People did not oh, like no, that no, no, at no. all. There was like, like I in the South, I say like, make the faggot play a couple more songs to warm the band up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And everybody's like, ah, okay. We they're talking about the elephant in the room, um, right? You know, and it's nice. Oh man, is do you feel like that's like a they're laughing at you or not with you, or do you feel like there's like a an no. actual understanding? I would never allow someone to laugh at me to my face. I'll okay. punch them in their jaw. Good. I liked, I want to flesh this out because I'm sure some of our listeners like might be feeling like, Ooh, that's jarring to hear on the podcast. Why is it important to you to like say the F word out loud at your concerts? Um, well, I think for one, I mean, a lot of these folks don't have a lot of queer friends. They don't have a lot of gay friends. And I think that there's a tension about like understanding my perspective. There's a tension about being able to relate with it. And I think that to, to use a slur, you know, faggot is not a reclaimed slur in the way that queer is. Like, it's no. still just not a good thing to say. Um, but I think for me to use it on myself in a laughing way invites them in and says, like, hey, we can talk about this and you can say the wrong thing and I'm going to be okay as yeah. long as you're going to be cool. You know what I mean? Like, if you, as long as you treat me with dignity and respect, we're going to be all right. I'm not going to police your language. I'm not a PC artist. I'm not here to do that. That's not what I'm about. And I think that it, it takes the air out of that idea that I'm like a social justice warrior here to like parade my values. And it becomes Mm -hmm. like, okay, this is just somebody who's pretty. I also, I also do a lot of jokes. My, my show is about 60% stand up comedy and 40% music. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and I think that like getting people to laugh and and it, it, it is in itself a very disarming thing. Um, yeah, I think it's always been important to me. And also, I think you know, some of it's just eight mile. You know, I'm just eight miling it my way through life. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know if that's a reference that resonates or not. Um, it does with me. <laughs> Shout out um, to Eminem. Would love to have you as a guest on Basic Folk. Eminem, you um, should really I've a, consider. I've got this. a number of questions for Eminem. Um, let me talk. Let me uh, talk about the White Trash fundraiser, which was oh, like yeah. one of the most powerful fundraising campaigns I've ever seen. Um, how did you conceptualize it? What was the reception you were expecting, and what did you learn about your fans? People had really funny ideas about this. Um, I have tried to get thousands of people to give me a dollar hundreds of times in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this was, this was the only time it worked. I mean, it was nuts. It was a, it was, I think I accidentally created a moment, um, on social media. I think that helped a lot. Um, yeah. but no, I did not think we would get $15,000. I, my vision was, 
I had had this song go viral on TikTok, and it got 450,000 views on TikTok. Wow. And I posted it on Spotify like a couple weeks after that happened because I was like, well, I need to try to capitalize on this a little bit. And I got like 20,000, 25,000 listens or something, which was the most I ever had at that point. And I thought like, man, I bet I could get some of those people to give me a dollar if I tried this thing out. You know, uh, especially if I'm just like, it, it, you know, I didn't want to do an Indiegogo or a GoFundMe or Kickstarter or any of that stuff. I just was like, man, if I just give my Venmo out there and I'm just like, hey, if you see this, give me a dollar and I'll make a record, you know. And the and the trick is also that record was written. I mean, it was. Yes. It was it was the songs were there. A couple of songs got cut because they uh, leaned too heavily on themes that were already w- better represented in other songs and it just felt sure. like too much uh fat on the record um but it, it was it was done you know i i'd been sitting on this for a while thinking like mm-hmm. man if i ever come into like 15 grand i'm gonna make a great record yeah um and so yeah it just it <laughs> the other thing is like most people that gave to this did not think that it was going to be uh the record that it is you know what I mean? Like, like if I was on the internet and somebody was like, give me a dollar, I'll give them a dollar. You know, I, I'm on Twitter. Like, I've bought people pizzas. I send right, people true. Venmo for their birthdays all the time. Like, I, you know, if I've got money on my Venmo, I'm trying to, I'm trying to share it. Um, What's interesting, actually, from a journalistic perspective here is that you and I are known friends and associates. Like, I think there's a lot of sources that would confirm that you and I are friends. And mm-hmm. yet to date, you've never Venmoed me just like a sort of thinking of you, happy birthday. Like it's actually never happened to me. So what I'm just wondering is like, are both things true? Like, is it possible that like, maybe we're not friends in the way that I thought? Um, maybe you actually think of this more as a business relationship. And and that's just something that I'm gonna be processing. I am going to Venmo. I'm, I'm sure that I've sent you a random Venmo before. No. And I'm gonna go look. While we're, while okay. we're talking, I'll be, I'll just be over here. Okay, so speaking of White Trash Revelry, um, which is the Adim's latest album, which was funded by the White Trash fundraiser and is out now um, via 30 Tigers. Can you talk about how, like once you had the funds in place, how did you plan the recording process? Who wrote your arrangements? How did you come up with your roster of collaborators? Like what the big picture stuff, how did you get started on that? So I talked to, uh, I, I decided to record it myself. That was my mm-hmm. plan. Um, I talked to Zach Russell, who's a friend of mine, mm-hmm. and told him, hey, I want you to do a yeah. verse on this song. I, I'm, I'm still working it out. I want you to write the verse and sing it. Mm-hmm. Um, will, will you do that? And he was like, yeah, I'll do it. And I am, am, had was newly friends with Zach and Kyle Crownover. I didn't know mm-hmm. them all that well, but I considered them both friends, and I, I really like both those guys. So I was like, I knew they were homies. I was worried that Zach would call Kyle and tell him he was doing a verse and that Kyle would feel left out. Sure. So I called Kyle, and I was like, hey, I just want you to know I asked Zach to sing this verse and I want you to do something, but I haven't decided what it is yet. I'm still kind of, <laughs> I'm still kind of mapping out. But I do want you on the record. You know, I want you to be part of it, um, because for me, the the whole thing was, 
was like if we can if if we can get enough homies on it you know then i can try to help lift the profile of some other people that i really believe in and that made me feel like well i don't know like less pathetic for asking people to help me you know what i mean at the end of the day like that's it like like in in the 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 healthcare system in America is a crumbling third world country institution. The the economy is in in dire straits. Wealth inequity is at an all time high. The idea of asking people to pre order my vinyl record so that right. I can make an album was embarrassing to me. But the idea of asking people for a dollar to help me and my friends try to get a little leg up in this industry seemed okay. Yeah. Um, and when I talked to Kyle, he was like why don't you let me produce it? And I was like, I mean, I'm going to produce it and I don't want to have to raise more money. And he mm-hmm. was like, uh, listen, uh, Dimi, uh, it's me, Kyle. <laughs> That's an incredible impression of Kyle. That's yeah, like people don't perfect. realize he's so creepy in Italian. Um, yeah. Wow, it's like, so brave of you to associate with someone that's Italian. I don't do it a lot. Um the 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 producer and the drummer and the pianist and one of the guitarists were Italian, but otherwise I didn't have a single one on the record. <laughs> Here at Basic Folk, we do not promote bigotry of any kind. This yeah. is just a lighthearted joke about um, how a deem is prejudiced against Italian people. It's okay. just a lighthearted joke. Um, please, it's just nobody, a joke. nobody send me emails. I can't have another email about this. Oh my god. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so Kyle just kind of like, you know, we pitched. He pitched a budget, um, and was like, "Look, if we pay everybody this much and we rent a studio for this many days, we can bang it out. We can get it done." You know, mm-hmm. my buddy's an engineer. He'll do this. This is his per song rate. Mm-hmm. You know, and so uh, that was it. And I was like, "We'd have to raise like fifteen k to even get started on this." I said, "And you know, I, I, I don't know if I want to ask people for that much money." But I'd already been thinking about like how I could exploit the TikTok virality uh, a dollar at a time. So I thought, well, fuck it. This is the this is the time. I've got this idea. This is the yeah. ask. Let's go for it. And probably a bunch of strangers will give me a dollar, and I won't mm-hmm. have to give them anything back. Right. <laughs> like I'm not going to have to send a bunch of packages, t-shirts. Uh, yeah, yeah, and keychains. It didn't work, and it, nothing ever went viral on TikTok. And I was so heartbroken by it because I wrote so many dumb jingles. I did so many mm-hmm. different, I would drive out of town and go to like cool places to like stand in front of cool things uh, and nothing ever worked out. But Twitter just like t- got so excited about it. Yeah. Um, I was and- there. I found it intoxicating. One dollar at a time. It was so strange. There was this, there was this one fellow, I'm, his name is Darren, Darren Staley. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just like is somebody who interacts with a lot of Twitter people and like mm-hmm. listens to their podcasts and listens to the- by the way this is free advice for any musician if you want to know how to get to people just engage with their art seriously and tell them what you think about it and you'll form a connection with them that's as simple as all this is people think that anyone in journalism or anyone in press or radio are gatekeepers who can do you a favor if you treat them yeah. well enough. And the reality is they're all coworkers and they all have a job to do. And if the job could include you and make sense, they'll do it. That's as easy as all of it is. Make relationships with your coworkers, treat them like you would your coworkers. It's that easy. Um, anyway, that's, that, that was really helpful advice. No, that's, that's very helpful advice. 
And it, and it worked because people, I think there was like a populist, like he's, our, there are guys, sorry, I'm, I apologize for misgendering. No, no. There, there are guy. Yeah. No, um, you, you, you were right. A lot of people said he's our guy. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people but said But not that. me, you're different. There are guys. And like, yeah. it, it felt like we were all behind you. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, I mentioned Darren Staley because he's the one that got Vincent D'Onofrio's attention. Oh my God. Um, and Brian Koppelman, who's now a, a good friend of mine, um, you know, just like kind of helped spread the word and, 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 and make these connections between people he thought would be genuinely invested in a, it, from a personal standpoint, not a financial mm-hmm. standpoint. Like, um, but I, I, there were a couple of like high dollar, donations one mm-hmm. one guy sean farragher gave a, like a thousand dollars last yeah. minute um and then somebody else gave like 300 but the rest of them were all 50 dollars tops that was like the big donation for a long time and most of them were one dollar or five dollars yeah. um, you're a country music obama i'm a country music obama yeah. um yes <laughs> that's what they're calling me <laughs> Um, um, I have some like s- some questions that I have had in my mind about the album because I've been listening to it so much. Um, all of our n- listeners need to go buy it. I think you've probably been hearing some of the rave reviews about how thoughtful and like timely and fun and smart and, and complicated this record is. Um, the one song that I can't quite wrap my mind around is Baptized in Well Spirits. Um, you see a lot of country songs that kind of jokingly talk about the rituals of alcohol. And what I know about you is that you're someone that has a an evolving relationship with faith and ritual. And I wonder if they're like, is that something that you've gotten from your mom that like altered states of consciousness are a gateway to the divine? That's a good, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, there's probably something to that. I mean, that I'm not the character in that song. That's an important mm-hmm. distinction to make. Yes. Um, who is the character? The character of that song is a guy who is hanging out in Gatlinburg, the Myrtle mm-hmm. Beach of the Smoky Mountains. Sure. And he's looking through uh, spray uh, spray art T-shirts, and he finds one that says, drinking when I'm happy, praying when I'm sad. And he goes, nice. fuck yeah. That's... <laughs> That's who that song is for. Well, who was the... There are a, a lot of really interesting characters on this record, some of whom I didn't particularly like. Hmm. Which character was the most challenging for you to embody as you as you had to, like, perform these songs on the record? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of weirdness uh, performing the character that is me. That's 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 hmm. probably the one of the more difficult ones um, because it is a caricature of a... Of a, of a an actual state of being um, that I that I struggle with. It's a character caricature, meaning like you were exaggerating parts of yourself, um, even as you were like even in the songs that are sort of confessional or or personal. No, I, I, I mean from a performance standpoint, I have to perform them as a character, even if it's mm-hmm. even if the character is me, and mm. that's a difficult thing to do because if I just get up on stage and tell people the story of Carolina, Mm -hmm. that feels like a very vulnerable and risky thing to do. It feels like a very intimate thing to invite people into. Um, And it is a shot for shot. You know, that's, that's pretty much just Mm -hmm. like, that's my story. That's my origin story. Yes. Um, But if it's a, if I'm an actor, you know, 
playing the role of myself in a movie about myself, that feels much more comfortable. And that's what mm-hmm. that's how I, I envision a lot of this stuff. And so this is a this is a series of vignettes and some of them just happen to be based on me, but I'm still playing this kind of performance version of myself. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, and that's what I mean. There's this it there's this weird vulnerability of inhabiting a space that's wholly mine and feeling estranged from it because Mm -hmm. I'm giving it away. I'm inviting other people to have it and to use it as theirs. And that creates and necessitates a type of distance from it that is uncomfortable to wield. You know, I think the obvious answer is my America, but the truth is I just felt you know, I that song is based so much on my dad and uh, my friend Bob, who was who was in many ways like a father to me, and the ways that they navigated the world, and and the ways that I tried to find a sympathizing angle to view them through, so that I could still relate with their humanity in spite of the ways that they made me feel sick to my stomach with the views they espoused, um, and and largely parroted by nefarious actors who you know, are, are, are planting these seeds. Yeah, I think it's important to remind people that a lot of the views that, I don't know, maybe you and I would find, like, repugnant, they don't come out of nowhere. Like, there's there's a reason that a, a whole, like, generation of working-class people in certain states, in certain demographics, have, like, fallen victim to this, like, xenophobic you know, you name it phobic, like it's not just random hatred. It's, it's very calculated and it works for the working class, for the, for the ruling class. You know, like there's a reason that these views are getting, are getting, um, parroted. That felt important to say. The, um, I don't know if you've heard this guy, Ben Shapiro, but. Oh, I sure have. He's supposed to be like a, like a, like a statue of masculinity, you know, and you hear this guy and he's like, now I want to talk about the way they're trying to dismantle masculinity in America. They're, these people are trying to make me, it's like, dude, you would fit in my pocket. I don't understand what, like, I'm not trying to hate or or in in any way on, on, on the effeminate nature of Ben Shapiro. I, I'm an effeminate person. But like, can we all just. Can we I've just chill out, out and acknowledge? <laughs> We're coming to the end of our hours, and I don't and I don't want to um, let you go before asking you some lightning round questions. Yeah. Um, but before we go, thank you for being an amazing guest on on Basic Folk, and I want to encourage people to go out and buy White Trash Revelry and listen for the different characters that are coming through in each song um, because I think it'll be a really it's a really great way to think about the different sides of yourself um, that are all present within you any I, I I can see all of those characters like living in the same household and I think that's what makes it such a cool album and so like perfect for our time right now um okay but without further ado are you willing to do a lightning round Yes, I do want to say thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thanks for wanting to to chat with me. You know, of course, I, I, I love you. I'm grateful to know you, and uh, the, the, I love you back, Dean. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so you have to answer quickly. Don't think too hard. All right, let's do it. Uh, that's it. Okay, sweet or salty snacks? Uh, sweet. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. If you could leave tonight for a ten day vacation, where would you go? Uh, Mexico. Why did the chicken cross the road? Uh, he was gay. What is your favorite children's movie? Uh, probably Encanto. Mm-hmm. What is your most useful non-musical skill? 
<laughs> I have none. <laughs> Who's your favorite rapper? Um, probably Sage Francis. Mm-hmm. What's your blood type? Uh, I, have, I don't even know. I'm gay. They won't let me do anything with it. <laughs> What's one song you wish you had written? Uh, probably that uh, Nine Inch Nails Hurt song. Oh, hell yeah. Back to Johnny Cash again. It's always Johnny Cash with you. Adeem the Artist, thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. We're friends. We'll, I'll talk to you later. We'll chat. Bye. Yeah, yeah. Bye. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. Wherever you get podcasts, you can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk, or you can check out our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.